Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. On March 28, 1841, Dorothea Dix visited the East Cambridge Jail in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and discovered that to her horror, many of the people locked away in this facility were not actually criminals. Rather, they suffered from mental illness. The 40-year-old teacher and writer was there because she had been hired to teach Sunday school classes at prisons and almshouses, but... To her surprise, these individuals who were not guilty of anything more than being sick or unwanted were living in dingy, unhygienic cells next to violent felons, often starving from a lack of food, and in some cases, even beaten and chained. Well, after seeing this, she began traveling across the state, visiting a number of other jails, and over and over again, she discovered the same thing. Folks in need of help, locked away for no reason at all, forced to exist in a wretched environment. So at each stop, she chronicled what she saw and eventually reported back to the state legislature her findings, hoping they would do something about the system that had failed these citizens. In the jail, one lunatic woman, furiously mad, a state pauper improperly situated both in regard to the prisoners, the keepers, and herself. It is a case of extreme self-forgetfulness and oblivion to all the decencies of life, to describe which would be to repeat only the grossest scenes. She is much worse since leaving Worcester. In the almshouse of the same town is a woman apparently only needing judicious care and some well-chosen employment to make it unnecessary to confine her in solitude, in a dreary, unfurnished room. Her appeals for employment and companionship are most touching, but the mistress replied she had no time to attend to her. Dorothea Dix's crusade to reform the way we treated our mentally ill did not stop in her home state of Massachusetts. 
By 1854, she successfully lobbied the United States Congress, who passed a mental health reform bill. And although this was ultimately vetoed by the president, Dix's campaign had already paved the way for establishing facilities specifically for mental health all across the country, starting a new era for psychiatry in America. Unfortunately, while the growing number of mental health facilities offered hope to many, in reality, most quickly became places just as horrific as the prisons that Dorothea Dix had visited years before. Overcrowded and unhygienic, lacking both hope and resources, and worst of all, engaging in barbaric treatments that did more harm than good. Facilities like the now infamous Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Weston, Virginia, that folks believe is filled with the souls of the people who once lived there. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West and West Virginia has become quite the landmark for folks interested in the paranormal. And if you were to drive up to this immense Gothic structure today and see those tall spires, long hospital wings, and shadowed windows, you'd probably understand why it has attracted all this attention. After all, if I were to ask you to imagine what a haunted insane asylum looks like, there's a good chance you'd picture this a sinister-looking time capsule from an era of mental health care when patients' treatments far too often resembled torture rather than compassionate aid. But even though so much tragedy and death has taken place here within these historic walls, at its conception, the asylum was intended to be a welcoming facility that offered hope to its patients. It was one of dozens of facilities built in the second half of the 19th century meant to actually help patients rather than hide them, all of which based on the design and philosophy of a man named Thomas Story Kirkbride. Although a surgeon by trade, Dr. Kirkbride advocated for what he called moral treatment for psychiatric patients. Treatment done in an environment that provided nurturing care and social activity rather than one with restraints and barbaric therapies, at least as they saw it during the time. To promote this practice and philosophy, in 1854, while he was serving as the chief physician of the Pennsylvania Hospital of the Insane, Kirkbride published a paper with the title On the Construction, Organization, and General Arrangements of Hospitals for the Insane, with some remarks on insanity and its treatment. You see, unlike many of his contemporaries and physicians of the past, Kirkbride believed that folks with psychiatric conditions could be cured. But to do this, he felt they needed to be somewhere other than their home, a facility designed to influence therapeutic outcomes. 
As a result, Kirkbride asylums began to spring up all over the country. They were immense facilities that primarily featured a central administration building with numerous long wings branching outward, allowing fresh air and sunlight into the space. According to Kirkbride's guideline, each wing would house a separate ward and would contain its own, quote, comfortably furnished area, like a parlor, bathroom, clothes room, and infirmary, as well as speaking tubes and a dumbwaiter to allow for open communication and movement between the floors. He also recommended that patient rooms be spacious, with ceilings, quote, at least 12 feet high but they were meant to only be large enough for a single person to reside within. Most of all, though, he meant for these facilities to be located amidst a fertile and spacious landscape of at least 100 acres, allowing patients the chance to see life and have the opportunity for outdoor exercise and therapy. This is what the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was intended to be, when its construction began in 1858. Officially, the building wouldn't be entirely complete until 1881, primarily a result of the Civil War. But in 1864, a group of nine women were the first patients admitted to the hospital. Edward Gleason, a historian for the asylum, described these early years in his book, Lunatic the rise and fall of an American asylum. In the winter of 1866, there were 45 patients in residence. They occupied the finished and southernmost wing along with the superintendent and several employees. There were patients of all ages and types of insanity. One eight-year-old boy was unceremoniously dumped at the train station in Clarksburg by his mother. She said he had been insane since age three. The oldest patient was 93. Tragically, while administrators and physicians had the best intentions, the Weston Hospital turned out to be not much different than other asylums of the time, as it quickly became a place not just for the treatment of the mentally ill or insane, but also a sort of dumping ground for society's unwanted population. People who didn't necessarily need psychiatric care as we understand it, but whose families just did not want to deal with them anymore. As such, the hospital's first logbook includes a pretty wide variety of reasons listed for admission into the hospital, including, but not limited, to grief, brain congestion, feebleness of intellect, seduction, asthma, laziness, egotism, domestic troubles, greediness, religious enthusiasm, menopause, superstition, and even novel reading. So y'all, it's not that surprising that given the vast and varied reasons how and why people ended up here, it didn't take long for the number of patients at the facility to far exceed the number of available staff and beds. In fact, by the time of the hospital's official completion in 1881, it was already at 300% capacity, with more than 700 patients housed in a building that was designed to hold 250. And yes, this number continued to grow each and every year. 
1913, the asylum was renamed Weston State Hospital and included additional buildings to help accommodate the ever-growing patient population. This included a geriatric center, a greenhouse for additional food, a tuberculosis sanatorium, and, of course, a morgue. By 1938, there were 1,661 patients housed there. This crowding was so bad that in 1927, an investigation discovered that there were only three attendants for every 65 patients and only three doctors for every 1,300 patients. And in 1938, a report by a group of North American medical organizations found that among its patients, the hospital housed, quote, epileptics, alcoholics, drug addicts, and non-educable mental defectives. So, life inside the hospital was awful grim, no matter how you look at it. And in 1949, with the patient population over 1,800, Overcrowding had, quote, reached a crisis level. Superintendent Dr. Joseph Knapp allowed journalists from the Charleston Gazette to come and see the asylum, and what they found was downright awful. Gleason writes, Patients were sleeping in halls and common areas. Rooms intended for productive activities were forced to become dorms with dozens of beds only a few feet apart. There was only one toilet available for 60 patients and a lavatory covered with pools of malodorous water. Only one attendant was available to care for this group, many of whom were not able or not willing to control their bodily functions. Gallons of disinfectants could not mask the terrible odor. The inmates huddled on chairs and benches, rocking back and forth or pacing aimlessly up and down the dark, dingy hallways. Aside from the poor sanitation, the hospital had insufficient furniture and lighting and lacked heat in much of the complex. Patients were crammed into rooms with up to eight sleeping in a space meant for one, while other patients had to sleep on hallway floors due to a lack of sufficient bedding supplies. That same year, a ward for the, quote, criminally insane was constructed behind the main building to help separate dangerous offenders from the hospital's general population. But this facility, kept far away from the center of the hospital, was the most ghastly. Edward Gleason claims that this wasn't the fault of the folks in charge, though. It was a deeper systemic issue that was occurring all over the country. The deplorable conditions cannot be blamed on the people running the asylum. The state was unable to provide the much-needed funding. Nothing short of a miracle would help. The directors thought that they had it with the advent of a radical surgical procedure developed in Europe called a leucotomy. Of course, in the United States, that, quote, miracle procedure was known as the lobotomy. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For years, the patients at Weston State Hospital were subjected to an abundance of harsh medical treatments and sometimes even experiments that would supposedly cure them of their ills, but as we know now, did not help. This included everything from ice water baths, electroconvulsive shock therapy, and sometimes even forced sterilizations. But of course, none of these treatments are even remotely as notorious as the lobotomy a horrific surgical procedure meant to separate the frontal cortex of the brain in order to prevent impulsive, violent, or otherwise unwanted behaviors in a patient. That's right, with a lobotomy, they'd basically drill a hole in a patient's skull to make them more docile and controllable. Today, the procedure's widespread use is widely regarded as a dark chapter in the history of psychiatry a grim example of how inadequate understanding of mental health and biology, as well as a lack of ethical considerations, could lead to truly harmful medical practices. But when the lobotomy was developed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, during a time when drug therapies just did not exist, the practice was widely hailed as a breakthrough in the treatment of mental illness. Well, in 1948, Dr. Walter Freeman, the first doctor to perform the procedure in America, came to Weston State Hospital to head up the West Virginia Lobotomy Project, which was crudely referred to by some as Operation Ice Pick. There, he performed or directly supervised at least 70 of these procedures using his own transorbital or, quote, ice pick technique. You see, Unlike the more common method of prefrontal lobotomies that involve drilling through the skull, the transorbital that Freeman did was even more gruesome. And y'all, feel free to skip ahead if you don't want to hear me describe it. It is quite grim. What Freeman did was he placed a slender rod into the corner of each eye socket and then struck them with a mallet, 
breaking through the bone. The instrument was then moved in a methodical sequence to sever connective tissue in the brain's prefrontal cortex. Now, if that isn't bad enough, what made it even worse was that he didn't provide patients with anesthesia. They were rendered unconscious through the use of electroconvulsive shock treatment meant to induce a seizure. At the time, they believed the result of this would relieve some of the patient's more severe symptoms, but in reality, the extensive, permanent brain damage the lobotomy caused was more likely to straight up alter an individual's personality entirely and greatly limit their ability to function. Only four patients died as a direct result of complications from lobotomies at Weston State. Those who survived were afflicted with lifelong cognitive and physical deficits that would require them to have constant care for basic needs. Fortunately, in the 50s, the quote, ice pick era came to an end with the development of psychotropic drugs. Yet it wasn't for several more decades until the 1980s when changes in the treatment of mental illness really started to impact psychiatric care in a truly positive way, significantly reducing the populations of facilities like Weston State. But even so, the conditions in the hospital never really improved. And in 1985, the Charleston Gazette once again exposed the hospital's practices when they reported that court-appointed inspectors found the place to be, quote, dirty and unkempt, with many patients left naked and, quote, confined to dirty wards with bathrooms smeared with feces. So as a result, the next year, West Virginia Governor Arch Moore announced plans to build a new psychiatric facility elsewhere and convert the Weston State Hospital into a prison. Now, of course, this conversion never materialized, but a new psychiatric facility was opened and the Weston State Hospital was closed permanently in May of 1994. Tragically, during the hospital's 130 years of operation, it's unknown how many souls died within its walls, whether due to barbaric practices, neglect, or natural causes. But most estimate the number to be around 20,000. Chillingly, there are several cemeteries on the property where thousands of these patients were buried in unmarked graves. At one point, the state of West Virginia attempted to exhume and identify the remains interred there, but the endeavor was discontinued after over 4,000 individuals were found in the site, making it a truly daunting task. Well then, after over a decade of sitting abandoned, the immense building was sold at auction in 2007 for $1.5 million and then opened for tours with the revenue largely going to building maintenance, as the new owners truly wanted to preserve it for its historical significance. And yes, it was at this time that they decided to start calling it by its original name, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. After all, y'all, that's good marketing, and if they're gonna take care of this massive historic structure, they need folks to come and visit.
Today, the main building known as the Kirkbride houses a museum on its first floor, showcasing various aspects of the hospital's history. It includes several rooms, each with its own unique focus. One is dedicated to the display of patient artwork, a testament to the therapeutic programs once conducted here, and another offers a glimpse into the diverse medical treatments used in the past, featuring artifacts such as a straitjacket and a hydrotherapy tub. Notably, two of the rooms have been meticulously restored to reflect their appearances in two distinct eras, one as it would have looked in the 1870s and the other as it was in the 1960s. As for the rest of the asylum, well, it stands in stark contrast to this portion of the facility, as it includes nearly two miles of untouched, decaying hallways and vacant rooms, eerily echoing the passage of time and the evolution of mental health care. So, as you can expect, many who take the trip out to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum do so in the hopes of experiencing something paranormal there. Some type of spiritual remnant of the horrors that occurred on this property. Now, obviously, as I said, the current owners capitalize on this legacy as a way to maintain the facility, but they weren't the first to claim that it was haunted. It said the stories of restless spirits and tortured souls within the building began long before the hospital ceased its operations. These spirits purportedly come from almost every era of the asylum's history, ranging from the Civil War soldiers who once camped on the grounds as the building was being constructed, to children, former patients, and staff. Some have reported seeing ghostly figures walking through the hallways at night, or glimpses of shadows moving in the corner of their eyes. Others have claimed to see a ball of light moving in a hallway or figures dressed in white. And of course, there are the continued reports of disembodied sounds, like the spectral wheels of gurney squeaking as they roll down the empty corridors. The first floor of the Kirkbride building is the oldest part of the hospital and is said to be the home of a former patient named Ruth. In life, Ruth loathed men, regularly throwing things at them when they approached. Some believe that her spirit continues to feel this way as it lingers in the hallway, with male visitors claiming to feel as if they have been pushed against the walls by an unseen force. Some also say they hear her whistling as they walk by. As if the overcrowding and treatments that we described earlier weren't bad enough, over the years, violence was also an unfortunate byproduct of patients with a wide variety of mental conditions. And on the second floor, there are said to be the spirits of several individuals involved in some awfully heinous acts. In one room, a patient was stabbed 17 times by another and purportedly one of them remains there today in the form of a shadow figure. And yet another room are the lingering souls of men who committed suicide by hanging themselves from curtain rods. 
folks who visit this room often feel as if the second they walk in, they're overcome with anguish or grief, some going so far as to report feeling suffocated by the darkness. In addition, Rebecca Jordan Gleason, the operations manager and owner of the asylum, recently uncovered documentation about the suicide of a woman named Jane Harvey. And the reason she went looking for this documentation was because paranormal investigators had collected evidence of a spirit's voice identifying itself as Jane. Yet the most recently infamous spot on the property is a space that has come to be called the Bedpost Murder Room. In May of 2019, an episode of Discovery Network's Portals to Hell featured the asylum, and Gleason told hosts Katrina Weidman and Jack Osborne about the horrific event that led to this name. We had two violent patients in here with a person who was mentally impaired and you know, he was known to be one of the sweetest patients out there, but every now and then he would have an outburst and that's how he ended up getting into this room. Now, the other two patients were not nice people, let's put it that way. So basically, they tied a sheet around his neck, threw it up around a pipe and would basically raise him up in the air until he would pass out. Then we let him back down raise him back up again until he passed out. Well, eventually, they realized they were gonna get into a lot of trouble. They laid this guy down on the floor. They had a steel bed in here, put the bedpost on his head, and as one held him there, the other one jumped on the bed until it pierced his skull and brain. According to Gleason, this particular event took place in the 80s, and as of the taping of this episode, quote, one of the men who killed him actually recently passed. Well, Gleason says it wasn't long after that, folks started to say that they saw a black figure outside of the room that, quote, goes in between the door of this ward to where the guests would actually visit. Now y'all, I could spend an hour outlining all of the paranormal experiences documented at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. And honestly, I would barely scratch the surface of what's out there. After all, it's been featured on almost every single paranormal show that has been made, from ghost adventures to destination fear, and all have walked away with similar findings. This place is truly one of the most haunted locations they've visited. In fact, veteran investigator Nick Groff of Paranormal Lockdown claimed that he had, quote, one of his most profound paranormal experiences here at Trans-Allegheny in 2009. Of course, whether or not you believe that the asylum is haunted or not, is up for you to visit and decide. But one thing is for certain, this historic structure continues to serve as a reminder of how far psychiatric care has come over the last century and a half. A grim relic of a time when medicine's ability to help 
did far more harm than good. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksnyder. If you're a fan of the show and would like more content, be sure to join us over on Patreon or become a premium subscriber on the Apple Podcast app. There, you'll receive access to both ad-free and monthly bonus episodes. For more info on Southern Gothic, be sure to visit southerngothicmedia.com today. And as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Little Shacks. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events Heroes and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.